The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, March 15, 2022. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, lots of topics to discuss today. We got WVU basketball, JT Daniels, and part eight of our top 50 West Virginia football players of the 21st century. But before we get into all of that, we want to remind all of you to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Just look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is a separate account from Brad's account, which is the Voice of Motown. So Make sure you search for both the Voice of Motown and the Voice of Motown podcast across all your social media accounts. Give us a follow, drop a like, and uh, send us any messages that um, you think would be helpful to give us about the podcast. And if you're feeling generous, always, um, you can send us a donation through the link in our bio on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media accounts. Lastly, we greatly encourage everybody listening to reach out to us, try to contact us, tell us what you like about our podcast, tell us how we can improve. We're always trying to get better, and we think your opinion matters. So um, reach out any way you can to us. So let's dive into it. Um, the Mountaineers played two games in the Big 12 tournament. They earned a win against a tough Kansas State team, 73-67, to before losing to the Kansas Jayhawks, 87-63. to Kansas went on to win the Big 12 tournament, but that was still a difficult game to watch. So what are your thoughts on the conference tournament? Um, the first game gave some hope. Um which, you know, going into the tournament, I was kind of up in the air on whether I should have any hope or not. Um, But, you know, Kansas State, we looked pretty good. We won the rebounding battle. Um, We got to see good Sean McNeil uh, for the first time in a while. Um, And we got to see uh, Malik Curry continue his hot streak. Um, Another positive thing from that game is we got to see WVU actually close out a game. Um, The past five minutes of the game, you know, WVU scored 12 points holding Kansas state to seven points before that uh, about five minute mark. It was uh, I think 61 to 60. So um, it was really encouraging to see WVU, you know, finish a game off because that's something we haven't seen in a while. Uh, We've seen a lot of kind of, you know, either it's exhaustion or quitting there towards the end or just not being able to find something that works. So that was really encouraging. Yeah. 100%. Um, Yeah, yeah, the Kansas State game, I think a lot of people thought that was kind of a toss-up game. It could go either way. So I thought it was good that the seniors got to get one last win in a WVU uniform. Um, Most West Virginia fans, I think if they were being realistic, didn't expect to to come away with a win against Kansas. But as always, um, it's it's just hard to watch WVU get beat down like that, especially for a third time against Kansas. So... That made it kind of tough, but um, after that game, the big storyline for Mountaineer fans was Coach Bob Huggins getting ejected 10 minutes into the Kansas game. Taz Sherman gets hacked by three Jayhawk defenders. Nothing gets called, so Taz says something to the referee and gets teed up. Coach Huggins gets frustrated, as I'm sure all of us were at that point, 
has some words with the referee, Doug Sermons, and he gets teed up as well. He continues jawing and receives a second technical, which is an automatic ejection. So I know referees have a lot of pride. Um, it's a tough job to do. I try to be understanding watching them. Um, I'm sure they don't like getting yelled at just like anyone else, but the whole situation just seemed a little excessive to me. What do you think? Yeah, that that was the most frustrating part of the tournament was just seeing that ejection because even though WV was kind of getting pummeled at the time, I think they were down by almost 20, um, you know, giving six free points to Kansas who doesn't need it at the moment um, and, and seeing how quick the ref was to throw Huggins out was just, I mean, it was completely discouraging. Uh, I, to be honest, I turned the game off immediately after that happened because I couldn't watch it anymore. Um, you know, because if WV, WV was going to make a comeback, Huggins would have to be on the bench. And, um, you know, it's just, you can't have that thinnest skin, especially in the tournament. I mean, talk to the, talk to the coach, calm them down, do all that sort of things. But, you know, to toss someone out that quickly to give out six free throws, um, in a game that's already kind of getting out of hand is just, it's egregious. It's, there's no reason for it. And there's no reason that that guy should be officiating any important games anytime soon, especially any tournament games. I mean, if you want to have sermons be the ref for a big 12 game, a regular season game, that's fine, but he shouldn't be able to do tournaments because in the tournaments, I think as a ref, you have to let some things go a little bit more. Um, because if you don't, then it just kind of ruins the game. Yeah, um, a lot of people were frustrated at that point because that, that was 10 minutes into the game and WVU only had four points, I believe. So, mm -hmm. And then they give Kansas six free throws. Um, I feel like sometimes referees, of course, they're going to miss some easy calls, but, um, you know, you, you, they're going to miss easy calls. But you also have to be understanding that if you do miss a call that people are going to be frustrated and say stuff. So... Um, I understand referees can be sensitive sometimes, but Doug Sermons definitely looked bad there. And did you know, six years ago, Sermons had a very similar interaction with John Calipari. He threw Coach Calipari out two minutes into a game. So I didn't <laughs> referee, realize that. Yeah, I mean, That's I know it was awful. six years ago, but to throw a coach out two minutes into a game, um, that's not good. He has history of doing stuff like this. So obviously it's hard to get yelled at all the time, but these refs know um, what they're signing up for when they take these jobs. They need to understand that they aren't the show. People aren't tuning in to see how the refs perform. So Coach Huggins should not have been thrown out there, I don't think. Sermons missed an obvious call, and you know he should have been a man about it and just took a little verbal beating, which all of those refs do from time to time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's just games like that are we've talked about it in previous episodes where the refs kind of either do too much or do too little. Um, and it just kind of ruins the game. So I don't think there's much more to say about it than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, let's talk about how a couple players performed during the tournament because it, it was interesting. We'll start off with Sean McNeil. He had a fantastic Kansas State game. Um, he shot seven for 10 and put up 21 points without a doubt, the player of the game. Unfortunately, Sean had a rough game against Kansas the very next night going one for nine and only scoring three points. And I think those two games kind of sum up McNeil's whole season, don't they? You know, he's top performer one night and then completely disappears the next. Yeah. And I did some digging on that because it was kind of really interesting to see you know, his numbers were really similar to last year, but also kind of the drop off that we saw in Big 12 play. 
And um, so I looked at some metrics again when WV played against top 50 opponents, which is basically the entire Big 12. Everyone is considered in the top 50, except for maybe one team, which is Kansas State. And in those games, his three-point percentage dropped from 37% to 31%. His two-point percentage dropped from 46% to 41%. His offensive usage remained the same. Um, His offensive rating dropped by 10 points. And in eight of the 21 Big Big 12 uh, games, he scored in single digits. And then in 11 of the 21 uh, Big 12 games, he had an effective field goal percentage under 50%, while his season average of effective field goal percent was 50.2. So um, it just goes to show that over half of the time in Big 12 play, he was below average or worse than what he was you know, normally. And I think that just goes to solidify kind of things that we've said in the past, and that's he can't be your second scoring option. He needs to be your third. And in a season where... We were searching for a third scoring option, hoping Sean could be the second scoring option. Uh, We may have been thinking about it the wrong way. Yeah, and that's the thing. Although his numbers are almost identical from last year and we're being, you know, a little tougher on him this year, that's exactly why. I mean, we had Deuce last year. We had Derek Culver. We had Taz. He didn't necessarily have to be the second leading scorer every night. Whereas, uh, so, you know, if his numbers were down a little bit, it wasn't the end of the world. Whereas this year, we had a whole team who struggled pretty consistently to score, and we were really counting on him to step up and have a bigger season, and he just didn't, unfortunately. Um, Like we said last podcast, everyone's a big McNeil fan. He's a likable guy, but um, the numbers are just the numbers, and there's really no way to spin it. He didn't have a terrible season, but he certainly didn't have the one most of us expected. And one of the things to think about with the top 50 opponents thing is that he's facing better competition who knows how to guard him more closely, make sure he doesn't have the space that he needs, but also better coaching. I mean, those top 50 teams are successful a lot of the times because of coaching. And those guys know that when Sean has the, doesn't have the ball, you play tight on him. When he does have the ball, you just wait for him to pull up for that jump shot. And I think it's important that if McNeil does come back, because he is eligible to come back for another year, that he works on you know, some more areas of his game. I know the one thing that he did a little bit um, during the regular season that we didn't see much of was, you know, he had a little floater he was making from the the free throw line that was going in. Um, you know, he seemed to be decent at finishing it around the rim. So working on those areas of his game, I think he could become more effective and make defenses play him a little bit different because I think the book's out on him right now and he hasn't adapted to what teams are doing to him. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I hope he does come back because, you know, for as many guys as we're losing, it it would be nice to have a couple guys back that, you know, are capable of giving you a lot of minutes and and, and playing. So um, I'm rooting for him to come back. But I agree if he does, hopefully he works on a couple little things that are uh, clearly lacking, like dribbling um, all the way to the rim, not just one, two dribble and then pull up defense. Um, But yeah. I mean, overall, he's a good player. It's just not the year we expected. Another guy I wanted to highlight was uh, Malik Curry. He continued his hot streak to close out the season. He scored 17 points against Kansas State and 19 against Kansas. He shot 48% from the field and 94% from the line um, over those two games. His last six games as a Mountaineer were spectacular. He scored 109 points in that stretch. Wow. And that's 18 points per game over the last six games. 
it's really unfortunate that West Virginia didn't make it to a tournament of any kind, even if it was the CBI, because I kind of would have loved to see if he could have kept this going and maybe carried us in, into deep into a tournament. I mean, who knows? He's been really fun to watch lately, and I just wish we had one more season with him. Oh, yeah. And I love the way that he adapted his game. I mean, early on um, in the season, he definitely seemed to be a guy who really wanted to go left and get to the rim. Um, then he, he made adjustments where he was pulling up from mid-range. He was getting more foul calls. He was being more creative on how he got to the rim. And, you know, he just kind of exploded the past six games or so. You know, of the in Big 12 play, he had 13 of 21 games in double-digit points, seven of the last 10 in double digits. And, you know, the one kind of thought experiment I wanted to do is if Curry played this way all Big 12, or not even all Big 12, but all season, what would happen with WV's record? So what I did is I looked at his, the amount of points he scored per minute um, over the past 10, six, six or 10 games, because that's kind of been his best stretch. And uh, during his past six games, he's averaging 0.72 points per minute on 25 minutes per game. Um, if we go back the past 10 games, he's averaging 0.59 points per minute uh, on 20 minutes per game. Um, and so what I did is I went through all the games of the season, I subtracted out the points he scored previously. Then I calculated if he played 25 minutes and scored 0.72 points or uh, played 25 minutes and scored 0.59 points to see how many more wins WV would get. So if he was scoring the way that he has been scoring the past six games, which is 0.72 points per minute uh, over 25 minutes a game, WV would have won six more games over the course of the season. Um, if we step it down and be a little bit more realistic at the 0.59 points per minute on 25 minutes per game, um, which was his average over the past 10 games, WV would have won four more games. So um, most of those games are big 12 play because we only lost one non-conference uh, game and that was against Marquette. And I think only um, I, I think that would have become a win um, in both those scenarios. But still, you know, if we get another three to five wins, you know, we're at least an NIT team. We might even be on the bubble. Yeah. Yeah. You're 100% right. Um, and we're going to talk about Malik more later in the podcast, but he even said, you know, he's kind of a slow starter. Um, and so, like I said, that, that's why I wish we just had one more season with him. But unfortunately, it just is what it is. But it was fun to watch him play the final couple months of the year. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, it's official. WVU season is over because they were not selected to the NIT tournament. And athletic director Shane Lyons announced that uh, they would not be participating in the CBI tournament. So it's unfortunate because I feel like they they would have probably been invited to the CBI. West Virginia draws a lot of numbers, lots of eyeballs. So um, West Virginia competed in the CBI tournament back in 2019. So why not compete this year? The only reason I can think of um, is Shane Lyons doesn't want to pay the $50,000 entry fee. It's unfortunate to the seniors. You know, you could also argue that Coach Hugs wants to get out there and start recruiting, checking out junior college guys, getting getting ahead of everyone. But, um, you know, according to him, he wanted to keep playing. So I feel like this all came down to Shane Lyons. What do you think? Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me too. And, you know, I'm kind of, I would have been okay with them doing the CBI. Um, I definitely would have preferred the NIT and I'm kind of okay with them not going to the 
to the CBI, um, even though it would have been good for the younger players. I'm not still not sure how much the younger players would have played. So, um, but it definitely does sound like a, a Shane Lyons thing or something where Huggins kind of knew that Lyons would say no, and Huggins was kind of putting the pressure on Lyons. I don't know if there's any sort of conflict there or not. I know there was um, some rumors about some um, disagreements during Huggins' last contract negotiation um, that they had together. So i um, not sure if there's any kind of sourness from there, but um, we could speculate all we want, and um, ultimately we're not going to get into the tournament, but just kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not like I, I'm thinking we had a really good shot at winning any tournament. Um, it would have been nice to see those guys play a couple more games and maybe get a couple more wins, but um, it's just been a really tough season, tough to watch sometimes. So maybe this is best that the season is just over and now the coaches can get out there, start recruiting and start building for next year because this is going to be probably their busiest offseason in quite some time. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important that, you know, we focus more on the transfer per portal and, um, you know, ju- not not just JUCOs, but, you know, guys who have multiple years of eligibility left or even the seniors kind of like we did last year, um, because it uh, I think it's pretty obvious that Huggins missed on most of the guys he brought in through the transfer portal last year. And it seems like he's still learning the ropes on how that whole thing works. So, um, you know, what I did is I went through and I kind of graded out how uh, how I would grade the transfers that we brought in this past year. Um, and we could start off with a uh, poly polycap, I think. Um, so I gave him a C plus. Um, I liked his energy. I wish he was like two or three inches taller. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, I gave him a C plus because I think, you know, the first half of the season, he might have been the D territory. But. He really developed, and I, I think his offensive game started coming along there towards the end. Um, his rebounding was inconsistent, again, just because he was so undersized, being, you know, maybe 6'7". I know that's why he's listed at, but I'm dubious of it. Um, but, you know, overall, I thought he was a nice player. Um, definitely not a Derek Culver replacement, but a nice, hard-working player to bring off the bench. Yeah, I actually gave him the same exact grade, actually. Um, so, Paulie, he played three seasons at Manhattan and then one at DePaul before transferring here at WVU. The Big 12 is obviously a huge increase in competition there, and it, it, it pretty much showed in Paulie's numbers. His minutes and per game, uh, minutes and points per game, I should say, they took a big dip, only averaging close to 12 minutes and three points per game. He was never a huge rebounder even before coming to Morgantown. I'm sure it had a lot to do with his size, like you were just talking about. His average rebounds per game before coming to West Virginia were close to six over a four-year period. Um, But during Polycap's lone season at WVU, he averaged 3.4 rebounds per game as a starting center. I mean, that's that's just not going to cut it. Um, But I will give Polly a lot of credit. His, His game seemed to improve during the final stretch of the season. And he played with a lot of passion. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever going to question his effort when he was out there. But uh, like we said, overall, I I also gave him a C plus. He had an occasional decent game here and there, but his inconsistent scoring and lack of rebounds throughout the year just really hurt West Virginia underneath. Um, Pauly just missed a lot of open shots, too, by the bucket. It, It wasn't like he couldn't get open. He just couldn't finish once. Once he was right there, um, he he would have been a nice player to relieve a dominant starter like a Derek Culver. 
Um, but to be a consistent starter against other Big 12 centers, um, I, I just feel like he couldn't really hang, and I thought it was kind of evident throughout the season. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, you're exactly right. You know, I think he's perfect coming off the bench, putting in, you know, 15, 20 minutes a night as needed. Um, he would have fit on perfect last year on last year's team where we needed big man depth. Um, and unfortunately, he's a year, here a year too late and probably, you know, expected a little bit too much out of him. You know, defensively, I think he was good. Um, but the rebounding numbers, he only had one game with more than four rebounds. Um, but he did have eight games with five or more points. So, um, you know, it, it's tough to kind of set the bar too high with a guy like him. Um, but, you know, the next guy on the list, um, Damone Kerrigan, um, I was a little harsher on. Um, I gave him an F um, just because he didn't show any improvement. Um, he's definitely the better athlete of the two. He definitely has a little bit more size. Um, you know, he definitely had some games where he looked like the superior defender just because he could move his feet a little bit better. He was bigger. Um, but he looked like I said, he just never showed any improvement. He never for as big and athletic as he was, he never grabbed rebounds. He could never finish around the rim. And he really didn't have that motor that made Polycap so valuable. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, DeMond had a very disappointing year in his lone season in Morgantown. And it was a strange one as well. Um, you know, he had two games this year where he saw the court for 20 plus minutes. But he also had two games where he played for one or less minutes. Um and that basically sums up his whole season. His time on the court fluctuated throughout the year, and he saw the court less and less frequently during that final stretch of the season. Regardless of the amount of minutes he received, though, his lack of production was hard to ignore. He just he went scoreless in 13 games this year. He failed to be a real contributor on the boards consistently, I thought. And, um, you know, the only thing about Kerrigan's game I really enjoyed was his shot-blocking ability which he was known for prior to coming here. He had 34 blocks on the season and recorded two or three blocks in 10 <laughs> games. So um, he was a good blocker. However, you know, just overall, his his season was disappointing, and I gave him a D for his lone season in Morgantown. That's probably fairer than what I did. You know, I, I think, you know, part of it too was, you know, you you could see flashes of what he could do. I think if he you know, had a little bit more, a higher basketball IQ. He had more basketball skill. I mean, there were games where um, we were throwing alley-oops to him and he was soaring above people and finishing. And, you know, that was early in the season. I'm like, you know, okay, if he gets his legs underneath of him, that's something we haven't seen really since, you know, maybe Kanate. Um, but it just never materialized. And, you know, when you see someone who has the physical gifts, um, you know, and I think, you know, when Huggins alluded to those players during the regular season, about how some people just aren't working hard enough. I, I think it had to be about some, Kerrigan and guys like Kerrigan where, you know, you can see it, that there's something there, but it's hard to push someone who doesn't want to push themselves. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered that too, because Hugs kept talking about, you know, there's certain guys who don't want to do what I say. They don't want to try hard. And, um, you know, people would speculate who it was, but he never really came flat out and said who it was. But then, you saw Kerrigan's minutes really just disappear during that final stretch. And that, that kind of made me think, well, is it Kerrigan's poor performance or is this the guy Hugs keeps talking about who isn't trying? I don't know. It's hard to say. Definitely. And, 
Uh, to finish this segment on a bright spot, Malik Curry. Um, I gave him an A minus. We just talked about him a little bit more in depth earlier, but um, you know, just the scoring punch that he brought was super valuable. And I, you know, I think that's something that Huggins has been really good about finding guys who act as that sixth man type scorer. And Curry kind of took hold of that. I mean, that um, you know, Tat or not Taz. Um, uh, blanking on the names, the two point guard, um, Jay Sean Page, and um, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. Um, kind of bad, but you know, those bench scores from Juco guys, transfers who come in, come off the bench, play hard, and really provide a spark. And I think Curry did a great job, um, of that all year. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. He, um, he finished the year averaging nearly 10 points a game, but I don't think that really shows how well he played. Um, and we talked about it earlier, Malik, even, you know, according to him, he's a bit of a slow starter when he gets on new teams, it takes him a few months to, to get used to it. And, um, you know, he wasn't even bad at the beginning of the season. If you look at his numbers, but the last couple months, man, he, he just really balled out. He, he, we talked about his hot streak earlier. Um, he was just truly special at times. He scored in double digits 16 times this year. Um, that's nearly 50% of WVU's games. So pretty consistent contributor. And he led the team in scoring seven times. All seven times were in this last two month stretch that we were talking about. So I give Malik's transfer grade an A minus. And honestly, I'd probably give it an A A plus if he, um, you know, if we just saw more of that at the beginning of the year, but I think that was a home run to get him it, it took him a while to get going but once he did he was one of the best players on the court it's like i said earlier it's just a shame we only got to see him for one season yeah definitely and that's why i gave him an a minus two is just because at the beginning he wasn't playing at this level but that's a high bar to expect um but still you know it'd been so great you know 18.1 points per game over the last six games 11.4 during big 12 play having that you know having even somewhere in the middle between their 14, 15 points per game during the entirety of big 12 play would have made a huge difference. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So that kind of leads us to next year. So we have, you know, those three that cannot come back next year. We have a lot of players that are up in the air. We don't know if Sean McNeil's coming back. We don't know if Keddie's coming back. Um, Taz is gone. Uh, Gabe is gone. So, uh, all in all, we're losing probably seven players, at least five. And there's a lot of question marks going into next season, you know, and that's not even bar talking about players who could potentially answer the, enter the portal, which could be literally anyone, um, which we're not going to even speculate on that. But, you know, I kind of wanted to, to think about what WVU needs to do over the offseason, what Bob Huggins needs to do to fix, you know, the issue and not run into this type of problem again. Um, so kind of the first thing I was thinking about is, you know, looking at the coaches and WVU has a really, really stable coaching staff. Larry Harrison, um, has been at WVU since 2007. He's been coaching for 35 years. Ron Everhart, um, he's been coaching at WVU since 2012. He's the former head coach of Duquesne. He's been coaching for 30 years. And then you have Eric Martin, who's been there since 2007. Um, he's been coaching for 19 years, most of the time under Huggins, um, and he is more responsible for the big guys um, in their development. So, you know, this is something that, you know, I wonder if they shake it up a little bit. I'm not saying fire all three, but, you know, I think keeping someone like Larry Harrison around would make sense since he's a really good recruiter. 
but someone like Ron Everhart, who's an old older guy, um, you know, he is kind of local. He did coach for Duquesne, but you know, looking through the list, you know, he kind of seems like the odd man out and bringing in someone who has a fresher mind when you have Harrison, who kind of seems to be um, Huggins right-hand guy and kind of is the assistant coach. Um, and Eric Martin, who is responsible for kind of developing the big guys, getting someone in there who's more offensive savvy or more guard dependent and working on the development of those guys, I think would be really valuable. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And as we all know, Hugs is pretty loyal to his guys. So um, it's a tricky situation, but he could definitely, you know, bring them all in and say, hey, I'm trying to shake this up and maybe get a couple young fresh minds who have new ideas to come in. And I mean, Hugs has connections. Maybe he could help whoever he's trying to gently push out into another coaching job. It's not like he's got to say you're fired, go home. And, you know, cut ties of a close relationship. But I couldn't agree more. I, I would love to see, you know, at least one younger guy on the staff who can bring in fresh ideas. I mean, we all know how it is. If you just have the same ideas floating around year after year, um, you're 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 not being innovative, whether you know it or not. You're just hearing the same stuff being parroted back to you constantly. It's it's good to get fresh minds, kind of like how Coach Brown just did over at football. You know, he was big enough to admit like, hey, we need to bring someone in who might have ideas that we don't have. Um, and I think that's what Coach Hugs needs to do, because I think the youth might even communicate better with the players when things are going a little sour, like it seemed like they were at times this year. And um, I don't know. I, I just feel like even watching our offensive game on the court, it just seems stale and old, doesn't it? Like it does oh, not yeah. seem like um, these new ideas that you're seeing other teams have new innovative offenses. So I think it would be nothing but a positive to maybe shake it up just a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I understand with Huggins and his, you know, loyalty. I think that's great. Um, but, you know, like you said, getting a fr some fresh eyes in there. And it doesn't have to be someone that Huggins is completely unfamiliar with either, you know, and I hope it's a hire that Lions will let Huggins make as he should. Um, and that would even be someone because, you know, I don't see Larry Harrison, who's been coaching for 35 years. He's not Hugs heir apparent. And I don't think Eric Martin is either, really. Um so even getting in someone too that you can kind of bring up under Huggins to be the next WVU basketball coach. And, you know, if it's someone with some sort of ties to the state would be even better. Um, and I'm sure that there's some guys down there that, you know, we aren't aware of that we aren't even thinking of at this moment that would be perfect for, for the job and to fit in and to bring in as potential, just a, the heir apparent to Huggins. I'm not saying like a Dana Holgerson to Bill Stewart sort of heir apparent, but like actually someone, who is going to be sitting for a few years and learning under Huggins. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, most WVU fans want to see coach Huggins be there as long as he can be. And, and for as long as he wants, and I'm in that group, but it would be nice to start thinking about the future. Maybe like you said, get a young guy in there who, you know, hugs can kind of start grooving to be the replacement down the road, because if hugs retired tomorrow, um, you know, we would have to go completely outside of our coaching circle, which maybe isn't a bad thing, but, um, you know, it wouldn't be the worst idea either to start moving something in place for, you know, 
whatever may come down the road. Yeah. And uh, if Huggins would retire tomorrow, I wonder if Beeline would come back. I think he's still looking for a job. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that would almost be too easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, Beeline, he, he was a fun coach. And although, you know, it was frustrating to watch his teams at certain times for certain reasons, um, he, he did have a really fun and innovative way of playing basketball. So definitely. So uh, that kind of brings me to the next piece, and that's the players. Um, I'll kind of let you kick this off to see what would you do if you know you had Huggins ears and you wanted to give him guidance on what WVU needs for next year. So if I'm going out and looking for players who can transfer in and make impacts, you know, impact this team immediately, I'm looking for a couple things. One, I'm looking for a tall physical center who can rebound. I mean, we talked about Polycap and Kerrigan and, you know, they look good on paper to bring in, but neither one was really known as a force on the boards. And, you know, it definitely hurt us for most part of the year. So I think without a doubt, Hugs needs to go out there and get a bona fide rebounder. He doesn't even have to be a scorer. It just has to be someone who can pull down close to 10 rebounds a game. Um, He needs inside scoring, whether it's from a big guy or whether it's from a guard who gets to the hoop a lot, because we severely missed that this year, having to settle for, you know, bad deep twos for most of the year. So get someone who's a good rim finisher, can get to the rim and kick it out, which leads me to the next one. We also need a point guard. I mean, this year we just, you had good lockdown point guards like Keedy out there playing good tight defense you had Malik who was a good scorer um, when he got hot but we never really had a good point guard who could distribute Um, I mean Taz and Gabe I feel like were our best passers and getting Mm -hmm. guys open and you know your your shooting guard and your like small guard slash power forward probably shouldn't be your best passers right right I completely agree and that that's similar to what I have you know I think for the point guard, um, I'm hoping that Kobe or Seth is that guy. Um, I do think that it'd be nice to bring in someone who's a little bit more experienced if Huggins doesn't think they're that guy. Um, because they both do have the size to play off ball too. Um, so, you know, if you could bring in someone who's definitely more of a distributor, obviously someone who has some size because we saw what a pure distributor looked like with Jordan McCabe in the offense where he was just a liability on defense. And as much as I you know, loved him, um, you know, it was hard to play him for long stretches at a time. Um, but yeah, I think at the top of my list, what I have is I, I want to get more wings um, and big wings. I mean, like six foot five or taller. Um, I, I think that hurt us a lot this year when we had to, you know, had so many guys out there that were under that were six foot four or shorter. Um, and we also didn't have the big guys that could really do anything. So just having someone who's, you know, kind of a, a tweener in size um, and can shoot. Um, doesn't have to be someone who can sc- create shots on his own, just someone who could stand on the perimeter, make threes, play some defense, and just bring size out there to, you know, help offset the loss of Gabe. Because having someone, we don't have anyone who can guard anyone on the court right now. Um, maybe you can hope Bridges is that guy, but I'm not sure if defensively um, he can do what Gabe did. So um, Gabe with shooting, I think, would be, you know, the 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 top on my list and then i agree with you 100 on the rebounding um we need a big guy and we need someone who's skilled i don't care if he can jump i don't care you know if if he can run down the court and fast break we just need someone who is a skilled big man who can 
post up, make some shots there. Um, fundamental rebounder, maybe can pop out to the free uh, free throw line and hit some jumpers. Um, that would be ideal. And I know a Conquo is supposed to be, you know, this really young, super high potential guy, but we're going to need more than just him because we have all of basically all of our big men leaving and Cottrell, I think is a lot more comfortable around the perimeter. Now maybe he develops more into someone who can play in the post a little bit more. We don't know about that, but, um, it's definitely important to have someone who is a certified, you know, rebounder who, who has done it before. Um, and I think it's important that we do that through the portal if at all possible, because I want, I want history of them doing it, not just potential. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even though I said, you know, a tall guy who can rebound, I understand those guys aren't just growing on trees that you can just go to a buffet and pick out what you want there when you're, when you're going through the portal, it's not that easy, but you don't, it doesn't always have to be a seven footer. Who's good at rebounding. I mean, look at like guys on Baylor's team. They're not giants, but they're great rebounders. Um, and like I said before, Polycap and Kerrigan weren't really great rebounders. They were okay, but they weren't even great rebounders when they, before they came to Morgantown. So, I mean, just go out there and look for someone who can just pull down boards and then you can kind of scratch that off your list and then go fill in another need that we need. Yeah. And I even like what kind of like what Oklahoma did with some of the smaller school guys. I think it was Groves or Graves, those brothers Mm -hmm. um, where they were big and they could shoot a little bit. You know, they may not have been the most physical post presence guys, but they brought something offensively that was hard to deal with. And I know it was hard for WVU to deal with, so that's maybe that's why I remember them so much. But there's a lot of talent in those lower lower level schools, those lower level conferences. And, you know, if someone's out in those conferences grabbing 15, 14 boards a game, you can bring them into the Big 12, and I guarantee you they're going to at least grab eight boards a game um, because they just know how to do it. Rebounding is a skill. It's not something that, you know, I think I think a lot of people think it could be taught, but it's something that, you know, it seems like, the all-time great rebounders just know how to rebound. I mean, Dennis Rodman, no one taught him how to rebound. He just knew how to do it. Yeah, just a nose for the ball. And, of course, you got to be aggressive. You know, Rodman was, he wasn't was always the tallest guy, but, man, he was always the most aggressive guy on the court. Absolutely. All right. Um, you ready to talk about some football? Let's do it. All right. Former Georgia Bulldog and USC Trojan JT Daniels has announced he is in the transfer transfer portal um it appears jt has narrowed his list down to three schools we have missouri oregon state and west virginia um he played two years at usc and most recently two years at georgia daniels won a championship last year with the bulldogs but injuries have prevented him from becoming a clear-cut starter at georgia he has two years of eligibility left so, um, you know, how do you feel about the potential of getting a veteran like JT Daniels? I think he would be a perfect fit for WVU, honestly. I mean, if you look at his time at USC, um, he started as a true freshman, uh, over 2,600 yards, 14 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. But his time at Georgia, um, it just seemed like there was so much promise there that, you know, like you said, injuries derailed this past season. Um, so he started out, you know, as a backup um, his first year at Georgia. Um, and then he ended up taking over, went 4-0 as a starter, finished the season as a starter. Uh, and then the next season, he started off, got hurt, and then what's his name? Stetson Bennett 
um, mm-hmm. took over and never really kind of like relinquished things. I think um, Daniels went back in here and there towards the end of the season when Bennett was doing bad. But once Bennett got hot, it seemed like Daniels time was done. So um, kind of that's when he decided to enter the transfer portal. It, but, you know, during his times where he did start, he was seven and zero as a starter um, combined 1,953 yards, 17 touchdowns to only five interceptions during those seven starts at Georgia. Um, so he has the numbers. It seems like he's efficient. He's a good decision maker and he's a winner. I understand it's a little bit easier to win on Georgia, but, um, still, you know, I I like the pedigree and I think the talent is there to be a really good quarterback, at least for one season. If he would come in here and ball out, um, and leave, I'd be completely okay with that. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think TJ Daniels could be a nice, you know, gap filler between Daggy and Nico because obviously Nico has to earn that starting position, but I think a lot of people feel like it's it's his it's going to be his job eventually at some point while he's in Morgantown. So, um JT, he's had a lot of injury issues over the course of his ger- career, but bringing in a guy with a lot of experience can only help the young guys like Goose and Nico. If you ask me, um, I mean, he can teach them a lot. And since he's injured frequently, just in case he does go down with an injury, um, you know, you guys, you got guys like Nico and Goose who can maybe fill in and maybe that's when they take over the starting position. Yeah. And I think that I think Daniels is much more like a Will Greer than an Austin Kendall because Austin Kendall just sat for all those years at Oklahoma. Greer played a year and showed that he could do it before he got that suspension. And I think that's what Daniels is kind of like, too. He's shown that he can play at this level. He just needs a team that will take him and let him take the reins. And I think, you know, um, Harold's familiarity with him and that offense, I think that would be great. And I think, you know, we even though we did lose some receivers, I still think that we have some good receiving talent out there. I mean, I'll never get off the Caden Prather train. And having a good quarterback to throw to someone like him is great. And we still have Bryce Ford Wheaton, so we can't forget about him and you know, he had a really solid season last year as well. So I think the tools are there. I think our offensive line is slowly getting figured out. Um, we have some talent at the running back position. We just need a quarterback. And, you know, uh, it, it, as great it would be to see Nico starting as a true freshman and, you know, going through the peaks and valleys that come with that, I, I would much rather have JT Daniels come in and give us a, at least one good year. And I'm willing to wait on Nico. So, um, I'd rather win now. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. JT, he's already thrown for almost 5,000 yards, 32 touchdowns in his career. So he has a lot of knowledge. Um, And plus, like I said, I mean, he can share that knowledge with these younger guys who are the future. I'm sure he's looking for a school who's going to almost, you know, guarantee a starting position since he's already been to a few schools. But he's a guy who can really push those guys. Um, and here's the thing. We're, we're talking about this. We were talking about this the other day. It's just a new NCAA with the transfer portal and NILs. Nobody has it figured out. Um, and coaches are still getting used to it. So three years ago, no one would be worried about Nico leaving. And Daniels would be a no-brainer to bring in. But now coaches have to be worried about scaring off players competition used to be a good thing now you gotta kind of be more strategic about it so um who knows what the right answer is coaches just have to think three moves ahead now it's it's seems like it's chess instead of checkers anymore in the new ncaa yeah and i I think you know 
even if it would come at the expense of Nico, as excited as, as I am for him, I think Daniels is such kind of like a sure thing. And um, at least as close as you can get, despite the injury history. And, you know, with all the players transferring kind of as quickly as they do, if we would lose Nico eventually, there's going to be more quarterbacks in the portal, just like JT Daniels down the line, because all these, you know, you look at these big schools, Ohio State, Alabama, USC, Oklahoma, they're taking, you know, it seems like a five-star quarterback a year. Where are those guys going? Not all of them are sitting there for four years waiting for the job. So one of those, you know, you'll probably have a year where two or three guys from those schools who were highly rated are looking for a job. And all you need is one of them to fall in our lap. And those are guys that we wouldn't get coming out of high school. But, you know, that's where the portal brings value to schools like WVU. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Brad was telling us the other day that, you know, Coach Brown is probably in win now mode. And he brings up a good point. You know, Coach Brown's entering his fourth year. Um, And I'm sure he's not going to want to wait around and get wins in year five or year six. He wants to win now, just like a lot of WVU fans do. So um, I could definitely see him going that route. Um, before we move on, though, cornerback Nick Troy Fortune announced he will be entering the transfer portal. Fortune was a starting quarterback this past season before he got injured in the TCU game. That injury ended his season, and we saw the emergence of Charles Woods at cornerback. So I definitely feel good with Woods starting. The only problem is WVU's other starting cornerback, Daryl Porter, already transferred to Miami. So in the span of about a month, West Virginia went from having three proven starters at cornerback to one. So what are your thoughts on that? That's exactly what I had written down. You know, if we still had Porter, I would feel a lot more comfortable about it. Um, You know, I know we had some really good cornerback recruits coming in um, this class. Uh, Spells, uh, Ben Wahad, I think was the other one. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but those are guys who are supposed to be really good corners. But it's a lot to ask a true freshman to come in and play. And, you know, especially in the Big 12 where you have guys like, you know, you look at the, what, what just happened at the combine with like Taekwon Thornton, who just ran like a 4-2, whatever. Um, and, you know, Tay Martin, who Oklahoma State didn't pass much, but he was a huge weapon for them. Um, so, I mean, there's just weapons all over the place that, you know, these guys are going to have to face up against. So it would be nice to have a veteran guy back there. And, um you know, it seems like we're going to have to rely on a freshman and they are highly regarded freshmen, but it's a lot to put on them. And I'm worried that, you know, a defense that at the end of the season or at the beginning of the year, I should say, when it sounded like we were getting a lot of guys back um, was going to be at least pretty solid next year. But now we're slowly losing pieces, you know, with Chandler Semedo, Porter, Jr., now Nick Troy Fortune. We're just bleeding out guys at a, area where it felt like there was some stability yeah and that that's honestly exactly how I feel I mean going into the next football season we thought our anchor was going to be our defense we knew we were going to be young in certain positions on offense and it was going to take a while to get chemistry there but we thought our defense was going to be bringing back you know a lot of good guys and that they would be able to keep us in games but now with Semedo gone Porter gone Nick Troy Fortune gone. You know, we keep losing these guys that now we have to fill with more young guys. And it's just, it's worrisome because it's just leaving a lot of big question marks. And I'm not one of these guys that is like 
so many people are transferring. What's going on? The, the world's ending. But it's getting to the point where now I'm starting to think, well, how are we going to replace so many important guys? This is going to be a tough task for the coaches. Yeah, and I think it goes to show a lot, too, about the influence that Jamila Dye had. I mean, it seems like he was loved by his players. And a lot of these guys who are transferring, I mean, another guy we didn't mention was Jackie Matthews, another secondary guy. Um, you know, the relationship that he had with these guys was obviously really strong and it's tough. You know, I made the analogy before where, you know, if you get hired to a job and you really have a connection with your boss and your boss leaves and you don't really get along with your new boss, if it's that easy to move around that the tr- like the transfer portal gives you, then you're probably going to go out there and try to find something that's better. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important for, uh, I think it's right as our new DB's coach. I, I might No, it's Brown. Shadon Brown, I think, is the new DB's coach. Um, and he really needs to kind of figure out a way to get his guys in there to make sure that he builds those relationships and keeps those guys around. Because, you know, you know Jamila Dye, it, it just seems like he's the ultimate cheerleader for WVU and, you know, the things that go on. Um, and he loves the university. And he has all the experience in the world to teach these kids. He's a great recruiter. I mean, he's probably one of the tops in the country for defensive backs. So... It's hard to refill those shoes, but it's very important that we find someone in the staff, if it's not Brown, to do that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, You know, obviously people are going to be transferring in and out. That's just the way it goes now. But what's getting um, a little worrisome is seeing so many starters, guys that like practically had guaranteed spots and they're still bolting. And I'm sure the NIL and stuff like that has a lot to do with it, but um like i said earlier coaches are still trying to figure out the correct formula for this new college football but uh it's gonna be interesting to see how we fill in all the gaps now definitely all right so moving on we are gonna go to our top 50 list we have rankings 20 to 16 for the top 50 football players at west virginia of the 21st century coming in at number 20 we got owen schmidt Owen attended Wisconsin River Falls for one season before walking on at West Virginia as a sophomore. He played at West Virginia from 2005 to 2017 and became an instant fan favorite for his hard-hitting plays and great personality. He was a primary blocker for West Virginia greats like Pat White, Steve Slayton, and Noel Devine. But Owen could run and catch the football as well. I mean, he ran for over 1,000 yards in his career. He scored a total of 15 touchdowns. Um, he, he just played well when it mattered the most as well. He had a 50-plus yard run in all three of his bowl games while at WVU. Um, so he, he definitely knew how to rise to the occasion. And um, Owen was just a great player. But his personality, his love for the state of West Virginia, I mean, that's what made him a Morgantown legend. Oh, for sure. And one correction to what you said. Uh you said 2017, 2007 was his last year at WVU. So just uh, oh, geez, did I say that? <laughs> yeah, he didn't play. He didn't play for 12 years. Guys. Yeah, he's not Van Wilder. Um, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, just a great character, a great, you know, cheerleader for WVU. Um, the one stat that I thought was really interesting is he was only tackled for a loss four times during his career, which is absolutely incredible. Um, and he was kind of like a, a a myth. I mean, when you listen to for for those of you who were around to watch the games and some of you who may not 
um, you know, has always made a point to talk about his face masks during game. He was um, notorious for breaking face masks as ridiculous as that sound. Um, uh, you know, you even had Rich Rodriguez who would take his face mask, put him on his desk. I think there was one that they made out of titanium. They still found a way to, to bust up. Um, in 2007, you mentioned his blocking um, for, you know, these great backs that we've had. He had 106 knockdown blocks and 17 blocks that resulted in touchdowns um, in 2007 alone. Um, and that's kind of where he got the, you know, that blocking, the hits, the physicality in those big runs that you mentioned kind of got him the moniker, the runaway beer truck. Um, so that was kind of the way that he was remembered. And, you know, he did get some accolades over his time. Um, they're not your traditional awards that he's won, but he won the National Strength and Conditioning Association Strength All-American Honors in 2006. Um, and he won college football's top workout freak um, presented by ESPN in 2006. So um, really well regarded for how hard he worked and how physical he was. Um, and that translated a little bit into the pros. He got drafted in the fifth fifth round by Seattle, which is an accomplishment for a fullback. A lot of the times fullbacks aren't drafted. Um, he ended up playing five seasons, two with the Seahawks, two with the Eagles, and one with the Raiders. Um, so not a bad little career, but, you know, he got done with football, moved back to West Virginia, and I think he opened a bar for a short period of time um, and kind of hung around with a band, a band that's uh, somewhat local to Morgantown. Yeah. Um, yeah, he clearly had a love for the state, and everyone loved him. I don't think anyone gets a bigger pop coming back to home games than Owen Schmidt. Um, but yeah, he's just a Morgantown legend. He was great when he was here. He played on some of the most fun teams I've ever witnessed as a Mountaineer fan. Um, yeah. And then, like you said, he went pro, got four career touchdowns. You know, he, he, he didn't have a super long NFL career, but he hung around, made some money, I'm sure. So good for him. And uh, definitely will forever be a Morgantown legend. Oh yeah. And you know, the, the just the intensity that he brought, you know, the blue collar nature of what he did. There's no kind of easy way out with Owen. And, you know, I think that resonated with the state a lot. And it's great to have him back. I mean, I guess uh, he is now coaching at Greenbrier West High School in West Virginia as an assistant head coach. So it's great to see him getting back into the game. And, um, you know, if it doesn't really amount to much, it's, you know, still him doing something that he worked his life to get to. And, uh, I wish him the best of luck there. Um, I do have a memorable moment for him. And I think it has to be the the 52-yard touchdown run um, in the Fiesta Bowl, um, which was just absolutely incredible. It broke the game open. I think the game was 3-6 to six at that point. Um, WVU had six, and that big score kind of tore things open for WVU um, in the big win that we had. And that's the infamous game where um, you've seen the maps where ESPN presented the the graphic where it has the picture of the United States and every state is thinking Oklahoma is going to win except for West Virginia. And um, I think Owen Schmidt even referenced that in his post game comments of that memorable Fiesta bowl game. Yeah. One of the most memorable post game, you know, interviews too. just him crying, knowing that was going to be his last game for West Virginia. Um, but yeah, that run he had, that's definitely the one you see on most of his highlights. So couldn't agree more with that play. Yeah. All right. 
Coming in at number 19, we have David Long Jr. After redshirting the 2015 season, David played linebacker at West Virginia from 2016 to 2018. He forego his senior season to turn pro, but David Long made a huge impact during his three years in Morgantown. He piled up 246 total tackles, 12 and a half sacks, and his 40 tackles for a loss ranked fourth all time at WVU. Um, During his junior season, David earned the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year Award, first team All-Big 12, and second team All-American. It doesn't really get much better than all of those accolades right there. So um, he was drafted in the sixth round by Tennessee, and you can now catch David Long starting at linebacker for the Titans on Sundays. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's just amazing what he did really in two years of starting. I mean, he left early to go pro and, you know, he had the, like you said, the fourth most tackles for a loss in WVU history. Um, he also had, um, he also tied for the most tackles for a loss in a single season all time. I don't know if that still stands. It might um, where he had 19 and a half tackles for a loss in his junior year. Um, and what was incredible about that junior year is he also had 108 tackles seven sacks, four pass deflections, and two forced fumbles. Um, his tackles for a loss were first in the Big 12, seventh in the nation. Um, his tackles, his 108 tackles, were second in the Big 12, seventh in the nation. And he led the team in tackles, tackles for a loss, and sacks. Um, that just goes to show how important David Long was to that team. And you know, he, he had a kind of unique style, too. I, I don't have a memorable play for him, but he was someone that if you watched him, um, he was a smaller guy. He was, you know, 5'11", like 210, 215 pounds. But he would engage with these bigger guys and kind of hide behind them and then just shoot out from nowhere. I mean, I was re-watching highlights of him today, and you sometimes you don't even see where he's coming from, and then he just shoots out and grabs their legs and takes guys down. You know, he wasn't one of those big headhunters. He was someone who was a smart tackler. He knew if you stop the legs, you stop the ball. And he was fantastic at it. Um, a sure tackler, extremely disruptive. And um, yeah, definitely one of the best linebackers at WVU probably um, of all time. Yeah, 100%. Um, his career sacks ranked 17th all time at West Virginia. And, you know, that's not even really what he was known for. So, I mean, he was just so talented. He's all over the record books, even on, you know, stuff that you don't even think about when you hear the name David Long. Um, I wish we had one more season with him, but he definitely made the right decision to go pro. It's worked out for him. Um, But, you know, as I was researching him, I started to think when you think about the Holgerson era, you really only think about offense, but you know, hats off to Tony Gibson for really coaching up some great and memorable defensive players who keep popping up on this list. Um, and, and a lot of them made it to the NFL. So statistically their defenses weren't always, you know, ranked real high, but they produced some really great Mountaineers. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I think um, not to get too off topic, but I, I think the Holgerson and, and Gibson and that whole group, they were so great at developing pros. Even if the pros didn't end up turning great, it was awesome to watch the draft and actually hear Mountaineer players get their name called because it seemed like for the longest time, at least growing up, you'd maybe get one guy every two or three years. And, you know, for someone who's big into playing video games, it was weird 
playing Madden and trying to find a team that had a Mountaineer on it that you could play around with. Um, nowadays, it's a lot easier. And, you know, it seems like that kind of culture changed with Holgerson and Gibson. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping Neil Brown and his staff can kind of get that train rolling again because, you know, it's just fun as a fan. It's not important to get players to go pro. Um, it's better to win, but I can't complain about seeing these former Mountaineers have success. Yeah, 100%. I couldn't agree more. Um, coming down at number 18, we have Chris Henry. Chris Henry played at West Virginia from 2003 to 2004. In those two seasons, Chris totaled over 1,800 yards and 22 touchdowns, which is fifth most all time at West Virginia. Plus, uh, you know, these numbers were put up on a run-heavy football team. Those Rich Rod teams did not pass the football a lot, and, you know, he still put up really incredible numbers. Arguably, his best game was against Syracuse when he scored two touchdowns and went for 209 yards, which, you know, that yardage is eighth most in West Virginia's history. He earned freshman of the year and all Big 12 or all Big East second team. He chose to forego his final two years in college to enter the NFL draft. And then he ended up playing five years for the Cincinnati Bengals and scored 21 touchdowns in his NFL career without question. Chris was a special athlete. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I think. You know, just like with David Long, how much he was able to do in those two years, Chris Henry did just as much, if not more, in those two seasons of his. And if he would have had four years, he would own probably every receiving record, still probably to this day, maybe, um, in WVU history. I mean, his redshirt freshman year, he put up 1,000 yards and 10 touchdowns. He averaged 24.5 yards per catch, which is the third most in school history. He was also only the second player to have a thousand yard season in school history as well, um, which is absolutely incredible. Um, he is the third player in WVU history to average more than 20 yards per catch for his career. He is still eighth. He still has the eighth best single season in WVU history in receiving yards, the fifth most receiving touchdowns in a career at WVU, the fifth best WVU uh, single season receiving touchdown record. Um, and he only started in 19 games and played in 23 because he did get in some trouble. Um, and Rich Rod did discipline him sometimes either by not starting him or he did get kicked out of a game and then got suspended for the following game as well. But that's just how much of a matchup nightmare he was. He was just a freak. Six foot five, about 200 pounds of just speed and length. Um, absolutely exciting player to watch. Um probably one of my favorite receivers to watch just, just because he was so special. Yeah, 100%. I mean, just a fantastic uh, football player. Um, his story did have a tragic ending. I, you know, he sadly passed away after falling off the back of a moving truck. Um, he had a lot of controversy throughout his career. You mentioned some of it, but I don't think anyone expected his story to end the way it did. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think he was still under contract with the Bengals whenever it happened. He was only 26 years old, uh, passed away in 2009, and he did have he did get in trouble in the NFL off and on for legal and drug um, issues. Um, and I was reading that he was actually the first player. He is believed to be the first active NFL player to be diagnosed with CTE. So, um, you know, it's, it's just terrible to see someone's life end that young. Um, he was a great player and, you know, I wish he was still around to see how his career could have went and to see him around Mountaineer field again, because he did have an impact, um, and, and 
at definitely one of the all-time greats of WVU history. Um, you know, kind of maybe a positive spin to put on things is that after he did pass, his his organs, organs were donated, and he was able to save the lives of four different people through the donation of his organs. So, um, you know, through the bad, you know, maybe you can see some good there. Um, but um, my memorable moment for him was it, there are so many deep touchdown passes that you can choose, but my favorite was his catch and double coverage in the Miami game where he went up over to Miami defenders. Rasheed Marshall throws it up to him. He jumps up, stretches out, comes down with it like it's nothing. Um, just kind of goes to show how special of a player he was. Yeah, 100%. The the one I always think of is that Maryland overtime win, just because I remember being there. It happened right in front of me, and you know it wasn't like – a spectacular catch or anything it was just a basic slant route but uh i don't know why that's the one that pops in my head a lot um but yeah i mean you brought it up um that's why i did bring up um how his life ended because um they ended up studying his brain in morgantown and yeah they they diagnosed him with cte which is kind of crazy because i read somewhere that they never diagnosed him with a concussion throughout his entire career in college and the pros and, um, you know, yeah, like you said, if you're looking for a silver lining, one, he did save four people's lives by being able to donate his organs. But also um, they really started to study not just big shots to the head, but lots of little shots could lead to CTE. So, um, you know, like I said, it's obviously tragic, but if you're trying to find a silver lining you know, his death might have saved a lot of NFL players and even college players down the road. Yeah, that is a, a definitely a good way to put it. Think of it. And, you know, I think, you know, it's it's great to. You know, ha- have that. I mean, as terrible as it is, you know, it's it. he's helping people in the future um, with potential issues and figuring out ways to address it, that figure out ways to prevent it. Um and, you know, hopefully that means we don't have to see another tragedy like Chris again um, because of the advances that were made because of his untimely demise. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, but shout out to Chris Henry. He was a great Mountaineer. Moving on to number 17, we got Will Greer. Will Greer played at Florida before transferring to West Virginia He played for the Mountaineers from 2017 to 2018. And in just two seasons, Greer threw for over 7,300 yards, which is third most all time at WVU. And he threw for 71 touchdowns, which is second only behind Geno Smith. Um, It's insane to think he accomplished all of that in just two years. I mean, those numbers are fantastic. He was just a special player. I mean, West Virginia had one of the most potent offenses in the entire nation while he was in Morgantown, and he was named to the second team, all Big 12, his senior year. Um, Greer was eventually drafted third round, pretty high for a West Virginia quarterback, to the Carolina Panthers. And as far as I know, I believe he's still on Dallas Cowboys roster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of the the perfect quarterback for Dana Holgerson's offense, you know, a gunslinger, someone who had no fear of throwing the ball downfield. I mean, he was just so confident back there, you know, had a little bit of cockiness to him and I loved it. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, his senior year was incredible. Um, 
nearly 3,900 yards passing, 9.7 yards per attempt. So he wasn't just dinking and dunking. He was slinging it. Uh, 37 touchdowns, only eight interceptions. Um, he had he has the third most passing yards in a single season. He has the second and ninth most passing yards in a game in WVU history. Um, he has two games with five touchdowns, which is tied for fourth all-time at WVU. Um, and he had a 15 and 10 record at QB um at WVU. And he was he had WVU three points away from winning their first Big 12 championship game um at Oklahoma. Um there were some unfortunate things that happened in that game. Um not do, not because of him. Um and we'll try not to mention them because they bring back bad memories. But um back to the positive, you know, his accolades, he was fourth in Heisman voting in 2018. He was the finalist for the Manning, the Maxwell, the Unitas, the and the Walter Camp Awards in 2018. Um, he he also won the 2007 Offensive Newcomer of the Year Award. So Will Greer was just a breath of fresh air when, you know, for, for so many years. I mean, Skylar Howard before him was solid. Clint Trickett was okay. But before that, there was just Paul Millard and a couple other guys that was just really hard to watch. And I, I think a lot of us as fans were kind of wondering when we were going to finally get one of those, you know, Texas Tech style quarterbacks who was just going to light up the scoreboard. Then Will Greer came in and really kind of set the world on fire for us. It was amazing. It was fun. The offenses were dynamic. Games were super exciting to watch. Um, it just brought a whole new breath of fresh air to WVU football. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, if you just look at WVU's all-time record books, I mean, he pops up everywhere. Single game, season, career, in just two years. I mean, he's all over the that stat sheet. It's, it's insane. And one of the biggest things that popped out to me was he threw for 300 or more yards in 19 of his 22 games. Wow. And, yeah, that's incredible. And he threw two or more touchdowns in 20 out of 22 that's so that incredible means nearly every game he's putting up 300 yards and two touchdowns at least bare minimum i mean that's just insane um yeah i we were talking about some of the quarterbacks earlier hopefully we're we can see that again in morgantown because like you said it's just so fun um uh, it just brings a buzz to the games when you got a you know a quarterback who's running the show and just putting up numbers like that consistently Oh yeah. And I, you know, when you look at his record 15 and 10, that's nothing like fantastic, but we were winning games and the offenses were fun. And I think, you know, if you can't always put out a winning product, if you can put out something out there, that's fun to watch. Um, you know, that gets people standing and cheering and pumped. I mean, Mountaineer field is a special place to be when things like that are happening. And, you know, it's a way to, to get fans engaged while you're kind of in between building things. So, um, you know, maybe that's something for, for Neil Brown to do is even though we are hurting on defense, if we bring in a quarterback who can bring some swag like Will Greer did, um, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, and that kind of leads me to the memorable moment, which is kind of the the ultimate swag moment from Will Greer, where he threw the game-winning touchdown pass with about 20 seconds left against Texas to Gary Jennings. Um yeah, I think that was the infamous horns down game, um, which was still goes on to this day. Um, and honestly, that throw, I still don't know how he put such perfect placement on it. I mean, right over the defense defender's shoulder, right into, 
Gary Jennings outstretched hands in the back of the end zone. Just absolutely beautiful. You couldn't draw up a more perfect play, a more perfect pass. Definitely going to go down as one of the top plays in WVU history, I think. Oh, 100%. And then to even, you know, put the cherry on top, then he runs in the winning two-point conversion right after it. I mean, just very, very memorable. It's hard to even, you know, think of another one other than that one just because it got so famous after he did it. Absolutely. All right, coming at number 16, we got Carl Joseph. Carl Joseph played at West Virginia from 2012 to 2015. And during his time here, Carl became known for his big hits over the middle and his playmaking ability. He was a starter all four years, which, I mean, you don't see that too often, totaling 274 tackles, 16 tackles for a loss, two sacks, and nine interceptions. His 208 solo tackles rank him 12th all-time at West Virginia. And these totals could have been even more impressive if his senior season wasn't cut short. In just four games, he was leading the nation in interceptions with five when he suffered a season-ending knee injury. So his college career was over, but his pro career was just beginning. He went on to be drafted 14th overall by the Raiders in 2016. Um, and he was just a special player in West Virginia's secondary. And Big 12 opponents did not want to see number eight coming <laughs> over the middle. <laughs> no way. I mean, he was so fun to watch. Um, you know, there's just so many things that even starting out with his freshman year, he was a four year starter, started 41 career games. Um, you know, his freshman year, he had 104 tackles, which is incredible. Um, and, you know, you talk about, you know, the total tackles of 274. Um, like you said, it could have been even that much higher if he played another eight or nine games that senior year. Um, he, he was all over the field. You know, he started out as kind of just like a, a tackling machine. And then over the years, he got better coverage wise. I mean, I know that was the one thing that kind of always stood out was, you know, if he can become a better, better in coverage in this past couple of years, he had, he became really, really good in coverage. Um, and, you know, obviously the NFL recognized that with that high draft selection, but the highlights that he had, um, there are just so many, um, he was just a really special player and it, his hits hurt. I mean, uh, there, there are clips that you can look up. I know there's one that, um, you know, comes to mind, uh, where he hit the, the Texas guy. That isn't the one I have my memorable play. Cause that one might kind of be uh borderline illegal nowadays, <laughs> but, uh, for, for my memorable play, I had the play where, um, Oklahoma was in the red zone. They dumped the buck pass off to the receiver and Carl Joseph picks up the guy and basically throws him down. Um, you know, and, and yeah, for people who haven't seen Carl Joseph for the younger crowd, if any of you are listening, you know, you're probably picturing some six foot four, 230 pound monster, but it's quite the opposite. Carl Joseph was about five ten, um, 200 pounds of just solid muscle. And he was, you know, there are plays where, he was engaged with like an offensive lineman and pushing them backwards. There are plays where he's meeting like a 220 pound running back in the hole and knocking him backwards. He was just a freak for his size. Um, really a sight to behold. Yeah. 100%. Um, and even, you know, he was first team all big 12 his junior season as a junior and no doubt he was on his way to doing it again, his senior year before that injury. So, um, you know, he was, probably I would say top two top three best secondary player we've had in the past decade so 
special, special player. And like we said earlier, a four-year starter in the secondary, you just don't see that often because, you know, secondary, you got to have a lot of knowledge as, you know, what's going in motion, what's happening. It's not as easy as just maybe lining up on the line and just, you know, hitting who's in front of you. So for him to not only be that skilled, but that intelligent to play all four years and put up big numbers, just what an athlete, huge credit to him. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's going to be hard to find another player like him because he was, he was also kind of at the tail end of the era where you could play a little bit harder with the big hits, you know, in the upper area um, without having being worried about the targeting rules or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think you're going to see too many players like him anymore because also coaches are teaching you to tackle a little bit lower now too. So, um, just really fun to watch, um, played a really unique style in an, in an era where the game was changing very old school. Um, he would have fit in perfect, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, um, with those NFL style games where you were just allowed to rip someone's head off. Um, yeah amazing yeah 100 percent. shout out to carl joseph all right that's all i got for today got anything else no that's all i got as well yep all right guys as always thanks for listening and i always want to remind you reach out to us guys we want some fan interaction we want to be able to you know just talk about west virginia football or basketball or whatever throughout the week this is what we like doing and that's why we do it um we don't do it for any other reason to you know, it's just fun. It's what we enjoy. So as always, thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And hope to hear from you soon. Catch you next week.